Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in today for Jake Tapper. And we begin with the health lead. Today, the CDC released its first set of guidance for fully vaccinated Americans, loosening some specific restrictions. If grandparents have been vaccinated, they can visit their daughter and her family, even if they have not been vaccinated, so long as the daughter and her family are not at risk for severe disease. But vaccinated Americans will still need to wear a mask in public or in many other settings with unvaccinated people. And travel is still being discouraged for now. There is also a turning point in the battle against coronavirus today. There are now more than 31 million people fully vaccinated in the U.S. And that is more than all of the Americans who have been infected during this entire pandemic, as CNN's Nick Watt reports. You can visit your grandparents if you have been vaccinated and they have been too. Finally, guidance for the fully vaccinated, how the government would like you to behave. Fully vaccinated people can visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors without wearing a mask or physical distancing. Visit with unvaccinated people from a single household who are at low risk of severe COVID-19 disease indoors without wearing masks or physical distancing. But even fully vaccinated still avoid travel and out and about still wear a mask. There is still a small risk that vaccinated people could become infected with milder or asymptomatic disease and potentially even transmit the virus to others who are not vaccinated. They'll update as the science evolves, but uh, for now, definitely don't do this. Not all at once. A mask-burning protest in Boise, Idaho over the weekend. Yeah, it's not helpful for people to be burning masks. We want people to choose to make the right decision to wear a mask. But will they? Meantime, (laughs) nearly 2.2 million vaccine doses now going into arms on the average day. I know the pace is challenging. This is a war. We can't let up. New cases now averaging just over 60,000 a day, lowest number in about five months. But about 20% of those cases could be the more contagious variant first identified in the UK, according to one testing company. That today is wrecking havoc in parts of Europe. We are in the eye of the hurricane right now. Still, there is a creeping normalcy. This past weekend, air travel, biggest numbers since the holidays. Miami is the place to be. Spring break is here. And already pushback from the airline industry to that CDC guidance that even fully vaccinated people should still avoid travel. Airlines for America says that with the air filtration in planes and all the masks, the risk really is very low. But of course, travel is not just your time on the airplane. And the CDC director says that every time we see a surge in travel, we see a surge in cases. Pamela. All right, Nick, thanks for that. And joining me now to discuss is CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. As always, Sanjay, great to see you. Sanjay, rather, great to see you. Walk us through exactly what the CDC says is safe once we have been fully vaccinated. Sure. Yeah. I, and as Nick said, we've been waiting for these for some time, but basically uh, defining who is fully vaccinated, starting off with that, uh, it's two weeks after you've gotten your second shot, if it's the Pfizer Moderna vaccine, uh, or two weeks after that single shot of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. After that, it's really a question of 
if you have been fully vaccinated and everyone else around you, if you're gathering people have been fully vaccinated, you can get together without masks, without physical distancing in a way that's going to feel much more normal. If you've been fully vaccinated and are going to go to a household who's not necessarily been fully vaccinated, but have been low risk because they've been, you know, mostly at home, then you could do the same. Really no masks or distancing necessary in those situations. Those are considered low risk situations. Um, you're going to see a lot of this next graphic here from the CDC, these, these visuals to try and make this clear. Green dots represent people who have been fully vaccinated. Orange dots represent those who have not yet been vaccinated. And you get an idea. So if everyone's been vaccinated, no extra public health precautions. If uh, one group's been vaccinated, the other group is low risk, no public health precautions. It, it, um, this is basically what we're starting to see the beginning of uh, as a first step here, Pamela. And you actually just spoke to Andy Slavitt, who is working on the White House's COVID response team, about this process of putting together these recommendations that we've been waiting for for a long time, as you said. What did he tell you? Well, it was interesting. There's a few things. First of all, the recommendations themselves came from the CDC, and he was clear to point that out. There was no interference, because that's been a concern, as you know, in the past, but no interference with anyone else to say, you need to do this. He said this was clearly from the CDC, their scientific guidelines. He also said we're going to see a lot less sort of binary recommendations, absolutely do this, absolutely don't do this, and more sort of low risk, medium risk, high risk sort of recommendations uh, to give people a sense of just how concerning things are so they can start to make smarter decisions. Also, they used the word in this briefing today, first step, about a dozen times, Pamela, uh, and I think this is an important point. Again, this is the first step, first time we're hearing these sorts of recommendations. Future recommendations, he said, are going to directly be tied to vaccination rates. So 10% right now, in two weeks, we could be at 20%, at which point there will be new recommendations. So every time we go up, sort of one log, logarithmic step up in terms of vaccinations, there will probably be new recommendations that are going to be looser, let people do more things. It's interesting that he said they're going to be making recommendations based on risk coming up, because one of the big questions coming out of today, of course, was traveling. I think um, people are still wondering why uh, can't you travel? Why are they recommending against travel if you've been vaccinated? Dr. Lena Wen says this guidance is far too cautious, that the U.S. is missing an opportunity to tie a person's vaccination status to their level of access to openings. For example, telling people that if they're willing to get vaccinated, they can freely travel. Do you agree? It's tough. It's, it's a tough call, uh, Pamela. You know, I mean, I, I talked to several people about this point. I agree with uh, Lena on this, but it's, I think the concern is that this would not be considered a low-risk situation because you're, you could encounter a lot of people who may be unvaccinated from different households. Some people may have vulnerabilities in terms of their age or pre-existing conditions. So at a time when you still have 60,000 or so people becoming infected every day, is, is, are you going to add that into the mix uh, for, for recreational travel? Essential travel, yes. But I, again, I think within a couple of weeks, or maybe even sooner than that, depending on vaccination rates, my guess is we're going to hear uh, looser recommendations around things like travel. It's, it's, it, it's not absolutely clear cut. I mean, that's the, that's the message I'm sort of getting as I talk to members of the task force. There's a nuance to it. And, and I think they're erring on the side of caution. They're erring on the side of caution. But at, at 
the underpinning of all of this, right, is to protect those who have not been vaccinated. And the fact that there is still a bit of an open question about how much people who have been vaccinated could be carriers and transmit the virus. What is the latest on the research into that? If you have been vaccinated, the the level of risk you pose to others in terms of transmitting the virus. This is such an interesting point, Pamela, and and I'll preface by saying that old adage, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And all I mean by that is that I think it's pretty clear from a common sense standpoint that if you've been vaccinated, you are far less likely to become infected and even less likely to become infected to the point where you could transmit the virus. They've got to prove that, and that takes time. You've got to follow these people out that are in these clinical trials for some time and actually show that. Is it possible that in some situations, someone who's been vaccinated could still uh, you know, carry enough virus in their nose and mouth to infect other people? There's a hypothetical concern of that still because they haven't proven that not to be the case. But I think it's really unlikely. I mean, you know, I think about this all the time. I've been vaccinated. I do still wear a mask when I go out in public, but I'm, I'm very confident, fairly confident that, that I'm not a potential carrier anymore. And I'm sure we'll be learning more about that. Temperatures are getting warmer. More families are, are going to want to head to vacation. I mean, look, a lot, so many people have been locked down this last year. Do you think that there is a chance we're going to have these looser guidelines by the summer once more Americans are vaccinated? It sounds like based on your conversation, we're going to be seeing that. Yeah, look, uh, with great humility, I say yes. I, I think we will have I, with humility, because, you know, we, we've been we get surprised by these these this virus. And, and certainly, you know, the variants that everyone talks about could still add, uh, you know, a cur- throw a curveball into all this. But I, I really do think, you know, when I've been doing the math, talking to people who are uh, really responsible for the vaccine rollout, understanding how the recommendations are likely to change probably every couple of weeks or even faster than that. I absolutely think that by summertime, uh, we should be in a very different spot. I mean, I think, you know, we could even be in functional herd immunity by that point. Now, it is possible, Pamela, that come fall, uh, the numbers start to go back up again, as we saw last fall. But I do think this summer, uh, you know, around these summer breaks that you're talking about, I think we're going to be in a very different and beneficial position. So you think really quick that the numbers could go back up in the fall, even though most people can be vaccinated by them? Because as we know, the supply will be available in May. Now, that doesn't mean everyone can get vaccinated then. But you still think in fall we could see another rise? Yeah, I mean, it depends. You know, if, if we have, you know, a third of the country still not vaccinated because of hesitancy or other reasons, then, yeah, I, you know, it, you may see numbers that are much lower than they are now, but then go up. I don't, I, if we get down to 1 in 100,000 people per day becoming infected, you know, uh, that's, you know, and then it goes up from there, it, it would still be going up, but I don't think it would feel as monumental or significant as what we, what we have right now. And just a reminder that these months, March and April, are still very important as well in terms of those mitigation efforts. Um, Dr. Walensky just said that today yeah. as well. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, we could talk to you the whole show, but uh, unfortunately we have to cover some other news. Thank you so much. Okay, you got it. Thank you. Well, a delay to the final step before President Biden signs the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. New details on the timing, plus the world reacting to the shocking Meghan and Harry interview, except for one place.
That bombshell interview with Prince Harry and Meghan is airing right now in the UK. And so far, the royal palace is mum on the explosive claims. On race, the couple told Oprah Winfrey before the birth of their son, Archie, there were conversations within the royal institution about how dark his skin color might be. On mental health, Meghan revealed at one point she felt suicidal and was turned down when she begged for help. I went to the institution and I said that I needed to go somewhere to get help. I said that I've never felt this way before and I need to go somewhere. And I was told that I couldn't, that it wouldn't be good for the institution. CNN Royal correspondent Max Foster has the reaction this interview is getting today across the pond. I've spent a long time uh, now not uh, commenting on uh, royal family matters, and I don't intend uh, to depart from that today. Addressing the elephant in the room, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson sidestepped the question of Harry and Meghan's bombshell interview with Oprah Winfrey, commenting only about his admiration of the Queen and her role as unifier. The palace so far having no comment whatsoever on the interview that highlighted exactly just how disunified the royal family had become, leading to the so-called Megxit. There's a lot of hurt that's happened. Airing this hour in full for the first time in the UK. The question is just how damning will this interview be to the royal family? After all, it was everything it was billed to be and more, detailing a royal rift between father and son. I feel really let down. A gulf between brothers who had weathered so much together. I love William to bits, but we, you know, we were on, we were on different paths. Candid and intimate, no topic off limits. I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And that was a very clear and real and frightening constant thought. The revelation that, amongst other things, isolation, a barrage of character assassinations by the British tabloids, had driven the Duchess of Sussex to thoughts of suicide, in and of itself, is shocking, leading to a show of support today from the White House. For anyone to come forward and speak about their own struggles with mental health and tell their own personal story, that takes courage. But the insidious undercurrent of racism, perhaps the most damning claim in the most explosive interview to rock the royal family since his mother's interview with Martin Bashir. What I was seeing was history repeating itself, but more perhaps, or definitely far more dangerous because then you add race in. One of the most jaw-dropping accounts in the raw emotional interview with Oprah Winfrey, that unnamed members of the royal family were worried about the skin colour of Harry and Meghan's son and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? And who, who is having that conversation with you? What? So, um... There is a conversation. Hold up, hold up. There's Stop several right now. There are several conversations. There's a con- about it. Which member or members of the royal family was it? Harry and Meghan wouldn't say. Oprah Winfrey on Monday only saying she knows who it wasn't. But he wanted to make sure that I knew, and if I had an opportunity to share it, that it was not his grandmother, mother, nor his grandfather that were a part of those conversations. Leaving open the question, just who could have said it? 
another shock. Their son wouldn't be given a title or the security protections normally afforded to members of the royal family, with no reason given for why. The idea of our son not being safe and also the idea of the first member of colour in this family not being titled in the same way that other grandchildren would be. Racism clearly emerging from the interview as one of the key factors driving Harry and Meghan from the royal family. The couple saying had they only had the family support, they would have gladly stayed. The very tabloids that Harry and Meghan say drove their mental health to the brink were swift to get the splashy headlines. The Daily Mail UK saying Harry twists the knife. Meanwhile, the broadsheet, the Daily Telegraph, saying Sussexes deliver enough bombshells to sink a flotilla. The interview currently playing out here in the UK. The streets here in Windsor, where the Sussexes have their UK home, empty. It is lockdown, of course. I think, though, Pam, that means that more people will be sitting down to watch this interview, this moment in royal and British history, and perhaps it may sway their opinions here. There is so much to process from this interview. I think people in the U.S. who watched it are still processing all of these bombshells that came uh, from this interview. More than 17 million people watched it in the U.S. as it's airing in the U.K. right now. Still not even a brief statement from the palace. You have covered the royals for years. What do you read into that? It's very hard to tell. I have spoken to some of the people behind the scenes. They're just saying uh, we're not expecting anything quite yet. I suspect uh, the various households uh, in the royal um, establishment are coming together, they're sitting around a table, they're trying to get together one unified uh, response to this. But a lot of it was so personal, I think emotions are probably running quite high. Uh, are they going to give a no comment? I think that's very unlikely. Uh, the other option is that they're allowing Meghan and Harry to have their voice, letting them breathe here. Uh, I don't know if that's true. A statement is expected. I think that's widely view, the view of the British media here. They're under pressure to come out with a statement. And then it becomes, what do they say? Is it a comprehensive rebuff of all of those allegations that came mm -hmm. out of the interview? Or is it something that says, we're going to look at this and try to learn from it? It's impossible to tell right now, but a lot of pressure on the palace to come up with something in response to this profound interview. So the palace knew this interview was coming, but did they know beforehand what the couple said? No, they knew nothing at all. I can tell you, Pam, that I was having conversations last night with people in the palace and they were asking me what I knew about what was in it. I think it's pretty clear that it was a very tight group that had access to this. I think even some people in the Sussex office hadn't seen it. So no one knew what to expect. Of course, it was touted as this, you know, a massive blockbuster, a bombshell interview. I think it exceeded anything that anyone expected. Such severe allegations, particularly about duty of care, particularly about accusations of racism, mm -hmm. pointed uh, the, uh, the establish the institution really at the center of British society. And speaking of racism, I want to play Oprah's reaction this morning on the skin color comments from the couple. Let's listen. When you say you were surprised about the skin tone conversation, were you surprised that that would be true inside the palace or were you surprised they were telling you about it? I was surprised that they were telling me about it. Mm -hmm. mm. Is that the big shocker here for a lot of people, that this couple is saying the quiet parts of society out loud? 
Yes, and just the basic revelations and who on earth was it within the family that was talking to Harry about skin colour. I think everyone is profoundly shocked by that and everyone wants to know who it was. Oprah adding today, of course, that it wasn't the Queen or Prince Philip. So the group is getting smaller of suspects, I'd say, Pam, and people want to know who it was. All right, Max Foster, thank you for bringing us the latest there from England. And on the issue of mental health, if you or someone you know needs help in the U.S., you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Resources outside the U.S. include the International Association for Suicide Prevention. They're online at IASP.info. You could also find help at BefrendersWorldwide.org. And coming up on this Monday, President Biden is preparing for a first in his presidency. That's next. Kamala Harris, the first female vice president of the United States, is speaking now at the White House on International Women's Day before President Biden delivers remarks. Let's listen. And today, women military members are stationed around the world. I say this to remind us while it has only been five years since all combat jobs have opened to women, women have been in the line of fire, risking their lives to protect our nation long before that. Today, we know women make up 16% of our active duty military and 19% of our enlisted officers. We also know that women want to serve and that our military is stronger when they do. Look no further than General Van Ovost and Lieutenant General Richardson for proof. Recruiting more women to our military, adjusting policies to retain more women, enforcing policies to protect women and ensure they are heard, and advancing more women on fair and equal footing will without any question make our nation safer. And that's the work ahead. So for now, let me congratulate General Van Ovost and Lieutenant General Richardson. And with that, it is my great honor to introduce our Commander-in-Chief, President Joe Biden. Thank you, Madam Vice President, and thank you, Mr. Secretary. On Friday, I submitted to the Senate for confirmation my first slate of nominations for four-star command positions in our armed forces. Among them, two outstanding and eminently qualified warriors and patriots, General Jacqueline Van Ovest, and uh, United States Air Force is currently the only female four-star officer serving in our military. I nominated her as commander of United States Transportation Command. And when confirmed, the Lieutenant General Laura Richardson of the United States Army will be promoted to the rank and join General Van Ovorst as the only four-star, as another four-star general. I nominated her as commander of United States Southern Command. And when confirmed, they will become the second and third women in the history of the United States Armed Forces to lead combatant commands. 
Each of these women have led careers demonstrating incomparable skill, integrity, and duty to country. And at, and at every step, they've also helped push open the doors of opportunity to women in our military. Blazing the trail a little wider, a little brighter, for all proud women following in their path and looking to their example. And I wanted to shine the light on these accomplishments for those women today, because General Van Ovost is uh, reiterated in an interview this last week, and I'm the second person to say this, it's hard to be what you can't see. It's hard to be what you can't see, but you'll soon see. Today is International Women's Day. And we all need to see and to recognize the barrier-breaking accomplishments of these women. We need the young women just beginning their careers in the military service to see it and know that no door will be closed to them. We need women and men throughout the ranks to see and celebrate women's accomplishments and leadership in the services. We need little girls and boys, both, who have grown up dreaming of serving for their country to know this is what generals in the United States Armed Forces look like. This is what vice presidents of the United States look like. So I'd like to spend just a few minutes today making sure that America knows who General Van Ovost is and Lieutenant General Richardson is. They're aviators. Both learned to fly planes before they were old enough to drive a car. General Van Ovost the first generation is a first-generation American, the daughter of Dutch immigrants who owned a flying operation. She loved the freedom of flight, and as a teenager, flew herself to see Sally Ride lift off as the first woman in space. <laughs> 16 years old, goes down to see Sally Ride. She said she was at several thousand feet watching from a distance. You know, women weren't were banned from flying combat missions when the general joined the force. So she focused on becoming a test pilot. And instead of learning to fly just one plane, she learned to fly everything, including Air Force Two when I was vice president. General Van Ovest currently is uh, overseas Air Mobility Command, approximately 107,000 airmen, and 1,100 planes that enable America's air power and humanitarian assistance to go everywhere in the world it need be. From flying water to Texas after the recent storms to ensuring our wounded warriors are evacuated for medical care from anywhere in the world, she gets it done. Lieutenant General Richardson's parents were proud patriots and must have rubbed off because Lieutenant General Richardson and her brother and sister all joined the Army. Her father encouraged her to join ROTC in college, even though that meant commuting to a different school. When Lieutenant General Richardson joined the Army aviation branch, women were banned from flying attack helicopters. She flew to, in support of combatant, um, combat missions and, uh, and conducting lift operations of her UE-1 the so-called Huey, and the Blackhawks. Now, as a commanding general of the United States Army North, Lieutenant General Richardson oversees military ground responses here in North America. 
all over, all over the last year. That's meant getting military medical personnel deployed to help in our response to this pandemic. More than 4,500 military medical personnel deployed in hospitals across 14 states in the Navajo Nation to treat COVID-19 patients. It means more than 2,200 medical personnel are working or soon will be at vaccination sites in eight states and the United States Virgin Islands. I'm so proud of the incredible work Lieutenant General Richardson and her team have done to support the American people this year. And the American people are as well. They're warriors. They're crisis-tested commanders. The best of all, the best of all, they're not done yet. Neither of these incredible generals is resting on her laurels or on her stars. They're using their voices and actively working to change policies in the military to make it easier and safer for more women, not just to join the military, but to stay in the military and to thrive. I'm incredibly proud that in 2015, under the Obama-Biden administration, we took the final steps to open up all positions in the military to anyone qualified to serve in them. The women who join today's military aren't told no when they apply to fly fighter jets or attack helicopters just because of their gender. They aren't told no when they want to apply to ranger school or infantry officer basic training. But they all know that there's much, much more work to be done to ensure that women's leadership is recognized and we have more diverse leaders. We reach the top echelons of command for all who are qualified, including all women, all women, and that all women feel safe and respected in our military, period. You know, some of some of it's relatively uh, straightforward work where we're making good progress, designing body armor that fits women properly, tailoring combat uniforms for women, creating maternity flight suits, updating updating requirements for their hairstyles. And some of it is going to take an, uh, you know, an, an intensity of purpose and mission to really change the culture and habits that cause women to leave the military. That women are making sure more diverse candidates are considering being considered for career-advancing opportunities at every single level. That women aren't penalized in their careers for having children. That women aren't just token members, but integral parts throughout all branches and all divisions. And that they can completely, fairly engage in promotion, compete all across the board, including on the uh, on age and gender neutrality and physical fitness tests. You know, that both members of the uh, of the uh, of, of, of the military, uh, couples can thrive while serving, like Lieutenant General Richardson and her husband, Lieutenant General Richardson, who I might add, I want to thank him for getting me off a mountain that was about 12 to 14,000 feet up on a goat path when our helicopter went down in a snowstorm. It's good to see you, General. The ride down that mountain was more perilous in the truck than it was in a helicopter, but thank you. 
And we have to take on sexual assault and harassment and violence against women in the military. Sexual assault is abhorrent and wrong at any time. And in our military, so much of unicohesion is built on trusting your fellow service members to have your back. There's nothing less than a threat to our national security. I know Secretary Austin takes this as seriously as Vice President Harris and I do. That's why this first memo as Secretary was a directive to take on sexual assault in the military and why he stepped up independent review. He set up an independent review commission on sexual assault to make concrete recommendations for changes. This is going to be an all-hands-on-deck effort under my administration to end the scourge of sexual assault in the military. And we're going to be focused on that from the very top. I know that we can do it. The U.S. military has defeated American enemies on land and air and at sea. And this is not beyond us. I want to thank General Von Ovest, uh, Ovost and Lieutenant General Richardson for their exemplary careers and service to our country. Your American patriotism at its finest, undaunted and absolutely, absolutely able to do anything by any obstacle, determined to open wide the doors of opportunity and ready for the next challenge. It's my great honor to serve as your Commander-in-Chief, and I look forward to hearing your active duty and recommendations of how we work together to keep the American people safe, meet every challenge in the 21st century. So I want to thank you both, and I want to thank the, the, the uh, former general, I keep calling him general, but my, my, uh, the guy who runs that outfit over there. Uh, I want to make sure we thank the secretary for all he's done to try to implement what we've just talked about and for recommending these two women for promotion. Thank you all. May God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. listening to President Biden marking International Women's Day along with Kamala Harris, the first female vice president in this nation's history. President Biden announced the nominations of two female general officers to become four-star combatant commanders. And if confirmed, they will be the second and third women in U.S. history to lead a combatant command. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins. So Caitlin, today kicks off a major week for President Biden. It certainly does, Pam. And we should note that what President Biden did not mention there is this is what the New York Times reported. Those are those two female generals whose promotions had actually already been decided upon months ago, but they were held up at the Pentagon because officials there, including former President Trump's defense secretary at the time, were so worried that if they recommended them to the White House in that normal process, that somehow um, they would be thwarted by former President Trump. And so they held off on actually recommending them to be uh, promoted and nominated for these four star commands. And so we should note that as well, something President Biden did not mention in his remarks, but was certainly notable as well. And you're right, this is going to be a big week for the White House. This is President Biden's first speech of the week, but it's not going to be his last because he does have his first primetime address happening on Thursday. 
President Biden will deliver his first primetime address to the nation Thursday to mark the anniversary of the coronavirus crisis. This week marks one year since the country was essentially shut down. Biden's Oval Office address will happen exactly one year after this one. The vast majority of Americans, the risk is very very low. Biden's first big address comes as he's also set to sign his first major piece of legislation. As soon as I get it. House lawmakers are now expected to vote Wednesday on his $1.9 trillion relief package, meaning Biden could sign by the end of the week. Our focus right now is on getting this bill across the finish line, getting relief out to the American people. The bill is a dramatic expansion of pandemic aid and federal safety net programs and underwent several changes before being passed by the Senate. Now jobless benefits will remain at $300 instead of $400 and go through September, while stimulus checks will be limited to those making under $80,000. Stimulus checks should start going out this month, but the White House won't say if Biden's name will appear on them, something Trump insisted on when he was in office. This is a very popular question. In terms of what the checks will look like, I just don't have an update on that for you today. Not a single Republican voted for the stimulus bill, with many complaining it was too bloated. This was not really about coronavirus in terms of the spending. Uh, this was a liberal wish list of liberal spending. Every public opinion poll shows that people want this. They believe it's needed. Meanwhile, Biden is also facing a growing crisis on the southern U.S. border amid a surge in migrant crossings. As you all know, we inherited a broken system. A delegation of senior officials traveled to the border this weekend for briefings and to see the first facility for children that opened since Biden took office. They went there because the president asked them to go because he wanted to hear and understand tangibly what's happening on the ground. Now, Pam, two other things we should note that happened here at the White House today. One, President Biden signed an executive order forming the Gender Policy Council. That's going to be a, a basically taking efforts to make sure that gender equality is included in priorities of the administration, both foreign and domestic. That's going to be a body that reports directly to President Biden. And he also has instructed the education secretary to reassess some of those Trump-era policies that had to do with sexual assault on school campuses, some that critics said really afforded too much protection to those students accused of sexual assault and not the ones who said they were victims of sexual assault. So you're seeing all of this come together uh, on International Women's Day. And of course, the White House said that timing was not coincidental. All right, Caitlin, thanks for bringing us the latest there from the White House. And I want to bring in my panel now, Dana Bash, Jackie Alemany. Thanks, ladies, for coming on. Dana, let's start with you. Let's talk about this relief bill. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a huge accomplishment for the Biden administration, should it pass. And it's not just for the checks going to all Americans. It will give money to reopen schools, struggling small businesses, child tax credits, health insurance subsidies. How significant is it? It's incredibly significant for all of the reasons that you just listed and, and much, much more. Um, first and foremost, to get people health uh, who need it. Secondly, just more broadly, to attack the still very big issue with uh, funding to continue the vaccine uh, rollout, testing, uh, and, you know, and schools and other things related to the coronavirus, but also the economy. But then it's also just beyond the content of this bill. Uh, Pamela, you know, it's all also about the, the setting of, of the agenda and putting a marker down for this president. It is his first big piece of legislation. 
He made, along with his top aides, a very strategic uh, decision to choose to do this, despite the fact that he did promise bipartisanship, saying, you know, pretty publicly, at least his aides have, he didn't think Republicans were going to come along in a way that was big enough to do what it needed to do. He was right because we haven't seen any Republican votes. Uh, and so we're going to see it likely to, to pass in the House. Big time Democratic unity, largely because of the content of this and because it is uh, intended to give a win to their new president. We'll see what happens with other pieces of legislation right. uh, down the road. That is a big question, too. How much will that hold, that mm -hmm. unity within the party hold? Biden, of course, has his first primetime address on Thursday and will likely be touting this major accomplishment of having this bill passed. Jackie, what tone do you expect him to take? Yeah, we heard from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki and administration officials that this primetime address that's going to be touting the, you know, one of the biggest legislative uh, packages in history with a single year impact um, is also going to focus on a lot of the sacrifices um, with, you know, uh, focusing on individual American stories um, that people have made over the course of this year and this pandemic that has killed nearly 600,000 Americans. Um, but look, Biden's ability to communicate this bill is really integral to his, to Democrats' 2022 electoral success and his ability to set the stage for his ambitious legislative agenda going forward, that infrastructure package that you and Dana mentioned. So that's why we're already seeing this White House in cell mode ahead of this Thursday address, administration officials and Democrats from one stretch of Pennsylvania Avenue um, to the other are already working very hard to uh, communicate to Americans the tangible benefits that are going to make the lives of Americans better. So, yes, we're going to see President Biden on Thursday night speaking directly from the bully pulpit to Americans. But on a week like International Women's Day, um, where we're celebrating and highlighting women's accomplishments, there is also no better spokesperson person perhaps than someone like Vice President Kamala Harris, um, who's also the touting the benefits of this bill and how it can directly impact women's lives. Of course, you know, it's not just incumbent on women um, to speak to these issues like the child tax credit that you both mentioned. Um, but again, she is a, a uniquely important messenger for the White House. And that's why you've seen her out there um, speaking to the EU parliament today hitting up various stops at women's small businesses um, in Virginia last week. And I think we're going to continue to see that leading up to this Thursday address. All right, Jackie, Dana, thanks so much. And in the meantime, more women come forward with sexual harassment claims against New York Governor Cuomo. And now a key political ally says it's time for him to go. News in our politics lead, the New York State Attorney General has picked the leads on the investigation into sexual harassment claims against Governor Andrew Cuomo. This as two more former Cuomo aides have come forward alleging inappropriate conduct, bringing the total to five women. And now a growing list of New York State Democratic lawmakers, including the state Senate Majority Leader, are calling for Governor Cuomo to resign. But as CNN's Bryn Gingras reports, the governor says he's not going anywhere. It was a painful year. At a COVID-19 vaccine event today in New York City, no mention of sexual harassment allegations against Governor Andrew Cuomo. The city's mayor joined a growing chorus of other state Democrats calling for Cuomo to step down. I just don't see how he can govern effectively when fewer and fewer people believe him. 
I think he would have to resign. New York State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins putting out this statement. We need to govern without daily distraction. For the good of the state, Governor Cuomo must resign. It was quickly supported by Assembly Speaker Carl Heastie and other state senators, to which Cuomo said Sunday, There is no way I resign. But while the governor is losing some support in Albany, the state's Democratic leaders in Washington still not going as far. I've always believed that sexual harassment is unacceptable and should never be tolerated. I called for for our attorney general to do a full and thorough investigation. This as two more allegations that the governor acted inappropriately with former staffers were made public over the weekend. Karen Hinton, once a paid consultant to Cuomo, says he inappropriately hugged her in a Los Angeles hotel room 21 years ago. The claims were corroborated to CNN by a friend of Hinton's. The governor denies them and called Hinton a long-time political adversary. And Anna Liss, who served as a policy and operations aide to Cuomo for two years, says the governor asked her if she had a boyfriend, called her sweetheart, touched her on her lower back at a reception, and once kissed her hand when she rose from her desk, according to the Wall Street Journal. I say to people in the office, how are you doing? Uh, how's everything? Are you going out? Uh, are you dating? Uh, that's my way of doing friendly banter. Now five women, four who formerly worked for the governor, have lodged accusations. He is a textbook abuser. The lawyer for accuser Charlotte Bennett telling CNN that the New York Attorney General's probe should look into more than just the governor. In any sexual harassment scenario, there are always enablers. There are people who allow the harassment to continue and simply transfer the women out. And we see that here. And Cuomo says he and his staff will cooperate fully with the attorney general's investigation. And Pam, we just learned from the attorney general who she will appoint to oversee, conduct that investigation. She tapped former U.S. attorney for the SDNY, June Kim, and an employment discrimination attorney named Ann Clark. Now, they are going to have access to documents and records. They have subpoena power, and we're told that they will have to report to Letitia James weekly before finalizing their report on these sexual harassment allegations, which will then of course, be made public, Pam. And we could hear the governor address all of this in the very near future. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. You know, today we tried to ask more questions about the allegations against him while he was in New York City. Uh, It was very much talk about the vaccine today, but the spokesperson did say that he will be available for questions and answers later this week. And of course, we would love to hear a response about these two appointments made by the attorney general for this investigation that will be mainly focused on him. A lot of questions. All right. Bryn Gingras, thank you so much. Reporting live from New York. Follow me on Twitter at Pamela Brown CNN or tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues right now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.